That's always the floor. We have the stage propped up. There's a mechanical problem with it. So if at some point during the sermon I just get swept underneath it, it's, it's not the words, it's the stage collapsing. So try to walk gently. I'm a plodder. I plod around. Usually I grumble and I plod around. Good morning. It's surprising but excited to see this. I'm surprised but excited to see this many people here on a, a July a summer's Sunday. It's, it's magnificent. Thank you all for coming. And I, I pray you remember the whole time who the audience is. You're not the audience and I'm not the audience. The King of Kings in heaven is our audience. And so, we, yeah, we are here to worship him. We are here to worship him. Um, I sent an email to Carrie and said, well, I want to title this The Shape of Discipleship. I actually want to change the title now. People love it when you do stuff like, no, Carrie, leave it up, because it is the shape of discipleship. I, I want to end with an image for you. I want to end with a shape of discipleship, but I think this sermon's better titled, Keep It Simple, Stupid. Keep It Simple, Stupid. And I think I'm speaking to myself here, yes. Keep It Simple, Stupid. Or, or that principle, the KISS principle. Some of us in, who've gone into the military or in business, we've, we've had some boss or, or senior person in our life tell us when we've made a mistake, you know what, you just need to keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, I think that's what uh, the feeding of the 5,000 has for us today. This stole was given to me. My wife and daughter were sure I was going to graduate from seminary, so they bought it two years before I graduated. I, I, I just put it in the closet. I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to graduate. Then what will I do with this? But anyway, right, I can make like a necktie out of it. Anyway, on the top of it, uh, on this side, is the feeding of the 5,000. It's a beautifully, beautifully done, it's a relief, actually. All these things are actually standing off the front of it. So this is the feeding of the 5,000, our gospel this morning, and that's what I want to, I feel like I'm called to talk about. Last week's gospel was about Jesus and the disciples, and they had come back from ministry. Jesus had sent them out two by two to do ministry. They did exciting things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they came back like missionaries. Tyler's been great here at St. Paul's about trying to set up space for missionaries when they return from the field. And we should do that. We should, we should have a place where we have a reception and the missionaries get to show us slides and they get to tell us what it was like. It's part of our way of serving as missionaries, even those that don't go. We can greet them, we can welcome them, and we can hear their story. And so last week, Jesus, the disciples come back and amazing things have happened. We've heard that in another gospel. Uh, I saw Satan falling from heaven. Uh, even the demons bowed in our presence. I mean, Jesus knows what's going to happen when he sends them, and they're pumped and excited, but the crowds keep pressing in on them, right? Everywhere they go, and they want to have just a little private moment in a coffee shop, coastal coffee. Why is everybody bothering me? No. Jesus wants to get away and be quiet with them, but it won't happen. This week, We've got this big crowd pressing in on them, and Jesus says, let them stay. As a matter of fact, let's feed them. Let's feed them. He does um, this in the most simple way, if you notice. That's where that kiss principle comes from. Keep it simple, stupid. He takes care of the crowd in a very, very simple way. He does it with just this one word, which for most of us in our culture drives us crazy. Sit. Sit. I mean, you've heard that little cute expression, we're human beings, not human doings, right? What that means is we spend our lives running around doing things to create this sense of self-worth. We even tell friends, oh, I had a busy week, and we kind of wear it like a badge of honor. The busier we are, we act like somehow that gives us value. Well, you're sitting here this morning, and you're saying you don't believe that. Just by sitting here this morning, what you say in, your, in just your presence is that God is in charge, and I don't have to do anything. 
and he will continue to make the earth to spin and keep gravity and allow us to breathe. God is in charge. So sit. That's what Jesus says. Sit. It's a word that I think we could talk about all day in our culture. For instance, our new minister is coming, Trip Jeffers. We're all excited. There's going to be an installation. I don't think that's the right word. Institution. I keep saying installation. I think you install like heater parts. You don't install a priest, but institution. We institute priests. Okay. He's going to be instituted here. And let's imagine it's that night, and of course the bishop will be here, and we'll probably get other dignitaries, Tyler and some of the other priests in the diocese will come. And what if we realize just two minutes before trip, the thing, the institution is supposed to start, um, we don't have enough hors d'oeuvres. Oh, St. Paul's, we, we can do hors d'oeuvres now. We, we should have a whole room full of lovely hors d'oeuvres, right? But we don't have enough. And what if Tyler or John or I just, as the crowd was running around and people were like, I'm going to go to Harris Teeter, I'm going to go home and make some more. I'm gonna, what if John or Tyler said, or the bishop, sit. Just sit. The hors d'oeuvres will take care of themselves. Or better still, God will take care of the order. It just doesn't work for us, does it? Somebody would still sneak out of here, go to Harris Teeter and get the meat and cheese plate. I know we would. We think we've got to help Jesus along. We've got to do something. And I think we wrongly believe this in just about every part of our Christian life. My son said in the car coming home last night that he had a friend who said something at the end of a prayer like, and I just want to help Jesus out. Well, I know where his heart is, and I don't want to criticize this young man in college for what he's thinking. But the reality is, we don't help Jesus out. We allow God to work through us, if we're lucky. It's a promise that he makes to us. I will fill you with my power and my spirit, and I will do works through you. We don't actually do anything. And when we say something like that, forgetting that that was a college kid, when we say something like that, I think what we're really doing is we're walking up to the cross. We imagine Jesus hanging on the cross. We walk right up to it, and we say, get down from there. You don't really have to do that. It's not that bad. Get down from there. Or worse, and this may make some of you squeamish, we pull on him. He's nailed to the cross. He's gone to do what he was sent to do. And when we try to get in the middle, when we think that somehow our efforts are going to make a, a difference for the kingdom on our own merit, it's like we're pulling on Jesus on the cross and saying, get down. Get down. It's not that bad. It is that bad, folks. Sin, sin is that bad. So we're in the gospel, and we've got the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, the, the gospel says, knows what he's going to do. Knowing what he was going to do, he looks at Philip, one of the 12, and he says this question. He tests him. I love it. He tests him. God does test us. So he tests him. He asks Philip a where question. Where are we going to get enough food for all these people, Philip? Philip answers him with a how answer. It's a where question. Where's the food going to come from? Philip goes straight to the finances and the how. He reminds me of a chief financial officer we had one time who was a lawyer who will remain nameless who drove me insane. He answered everything with how questions. How are we going to pay for that? You know, that's what Philip's doing. Philip says, oh, a year's wages wouldn't make enough money to pay for all the food that's going to take to feed these 5,000 men and women and children. Probably were 8,000 people there. Probably were more like 8,000 people there. Where, Jesus asks, Philip says, I don't know how. Jesus is giving Philip that moment that I talked about a couple weeks ago with John the Baptist. Jesus is looking right at Philip. He's got an answer that he wants Philip to say. He's just done some amazing things in the first five chapters of John. What Jesus is looking for Philip to say is an answer to this question. 
And imagine Philip and Jesus beard to beard staring at each other. Philip, where does all the bread in the world come from? Where does all the bread in the world come from, Philip? Who does all blessing flow from, Philip? Jesus, God himself, standing right there, simply wants Philip to say, you are God. You can do anything. You turn 10 gallons of water into wine for Pete's sake. This is an underhanded pitch for you. You are God. You can do this. But he gets it wrong. The fact that he gets it wrong doesn't deter Jesus. The fact that we get it wrong doesn't deter Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who's come to act. Jesus came on earth to act. When he was born in the major, like I've said before, it was like a nuclear blast. That may not be the best way to describe it, but it's this shock wave that went out across all the earth the second that baby took a breath on earth. Jesus came to act. And so, like I said, how he acts is he says, sit. Simply just sit. Because he knew what he was going to do. So Jesus takes inventory of what he's got, a few barley loaves, a couple fish, and then what does he do? He gives thanks, he breaks it, and he hands it out. Gong. We say it every week up here during communion. Uh, if we would have read the King's passage this morning, Elisha, way back in the Old Testament, does the same thing. Jesus will do it on the night before he is crucified. He takes he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. That's the shape of discipleship. He hands it out, and as God promises, and as we would have heard in Elisha, surprise, surprise, there's more than enough, more than enough food. Don't forget this fact. He's feeding them like God fed them in the wilderness. But in another chapter, at the end of this book, he's going to actually feed them with his own body. He will say at the end of chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He will be taken. He will be blessed by the Father, broken and given for our sins. It's the life of the beloved. It's the shape of discipleship, according to Henry Nouwen. And it's the shape that our life should take because we are his disciples. Nouwen says it this way, chosen, not taken, blessed, broken, given. God has chosen us, Scripture says. God then blesses us. And I'm not talking about the mamby-pamby blessing at the end of a phone call or on somebody's voicemail. Have a blessed day. No, this blessing that we've received from God is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. I'm going to get to that in a second. It's humongous. Jill, I am so glad the weight of Scripture made you nervous this morning. I know you, and I, I could hear in your voice the weight of those words. That's exactly the way it should be read. It's heavy. Those are heavy, big words. It's not some light little, bless you, that's fine. We should say that, bless you, bless you, Frank, bless you, Tyler. But this blessing is the blessing that only God can do, taken or chosen, blessed, broken, and given. So how? How, Gary? How is that possible? Well, it's right there in the Ephesians passage. The answer to how can this be is right there in the Ephesians passage that Jill read, verses 14 through 21. It's amazing. This is a prayer. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. It's a beautiful prayer. I'll confess, one of my favorite reggae artists opens up a lot of his concerts with this verse of Scripture. That's his little sidebar. It's a freebie. Don't rush out and buy reggae music. We could have a whole other conversation. I'm sure somebody's going to call the bishop and say, he listens to reggae music. Anyway, 
No, they won't. Yeah, anyway, he opens concerts with Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And he, and he, he says it and prays it in a, in a beautiful, beautiful way. Paul wants us to know three things for certain in this prayer. Three things for certain in this prayer. But Paul is saying this beautiful prayer in light of the gift or the blessing that is our reconciliation by Jesus through the cross. Through the cross. Not by us through our wallets, not by us through our charm, not by us by the way we dress, but the the gift that we have, the reconciliation to God by Christ through the cross. Paul wants to say it comes with these three things. I, I pray that you know this, church. I pray that we hear it this morning, church. The first is right there in verse 16. Right there in verse 16. I've been waiting all week to read this. I hope I don't blow it. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You should feel the spirit of God moving through you right now. God has filled us with his inner strength. He's mediated through Christ that power, and he's poured it into us. Paul says, I pray that you know that. Secondly, look at the first half of verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I've said that a million times. Jesus dwells in us. The Spirit of God is in us. And because his Spirit is there, he is constantly, relentlessly pushing out the cruddiness the cruddiness that is in our heart, because Christ resides there, he is constantly pushing out the cruddiness, making room for more of him so that he can fully inhabit the entire space of our heart that one day when we see him face to face. And finally, Paul says in the second half of verse 17, which is, which is I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, I'm gonna keep going, may have power together with all the saints down through time to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. We are rooted in love, Paul says. It's the secure basis for our life. It's not our wallet, it's not our last name, it's not what we can do intellectually. It is God's love. And that love, Paul says, shows us what we have in common with each other. We don't all work at the same place. We didn't all come from the same family. But this love demonstrated by Christ on the cross is the thing that gives us our commonality. It's the common piece of all believers that we receive this divine love. That's it. Sit and receive this divine love. And Paul says in verse 18, I gotta throw a little Greek at you. I just love this. I, I pray that you can comprehend and when I, when I read that in our culture, I think, okay, I pray that I can think. And what Paul is actually saying in the Greek is, I pray that you can grasp this. So not only do you know how to drive a car, for instance, but you actually know how the car works. Paul wants us to understand not only in our heads that God loves us this deeply and that that love is inexhaustible. So it's all the love in the universe and a little bit more. All the love in the universe and a little bit more. Paul wants us to know that this love is, is something that we should hold on to and bury deep inside of us because this shape of discipleship is hard. The chosen part's pretty cool. I'm chosen by God. That feels great. You're all chosen by God, I pray. Chosen by God. Uh, blessed. Like I said, Paul's saying the blessing is standing in or standing at the foot of the cross. 
and receiving what Christ has done for us. Simply sitting there and receiving it. So, so far, so good, right? We're okay with the chosen taken part. We're okay with the getting blessed part, right? Here comes the hard part, broken and given. We will be broken and given. He is not content to leave us the way we are. We will get this thing that says, I think I'm supposed to read in church. And then the morning of it go, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to stand in front of St. Paul's and do this. God will do that to us. That's what he does. I went on Kairos one time, and it was gritty and raw and painful, and I finished it and said to God and everyone listening, I'll never do that again. (laughs) My father-in-law, who's sitting here this morning, he's a Kairos addict. He's addicted to Kairos. There are a lot of men that are, and and I mean that lovingly, and we've talked about this. It is a fantastic ministry, but there are lots of men and women who when Kairos doors open, they're the first people there. They, there's something about that ministry that connects with them, and so they can't wait to be part of Kairos, and it's, it's amazing. So I made this dumb mistake one time when I visited him in Ohio. I said, you know, if you ever move to South Carolina, and you're there, and I'm there, and you decide you want to do Kairos again, you know, I'll do it with you, knowing full well that they'd never leave Ohio. Here he is. So he comes, and I'm not kidding. We're unloading boxes of shells it was funny. They lived here for years. They put shells in boxes. They drove them all the way to Ohio, left them in the boxes, and then we brought them all the way back here again. I'll tell a little story on you. Anyway, so we're unloading these boxes. I'm starting to sweat, and he looks at me in the midst of the first couple days and says, so are we going to do Kairos together? I was like, oh, come on, man. No. I mean, do I have do I? He said, you know, I'd like to do it with you. And, and I'll just, the first time I did it, it was amazing, but we didn't have a very prayerful group. We had, we, we, there were some prayers going on, but what really needed to happen in that situation is, and you guys may have heard me at other times talk about Kairos, we really needed to be prayed out of that ministry every day. When you leave the prison, dark, dark place, I really need prayer. It needs to be blanketed, surrounded, bookended by prayer. And it, that didn't happen, it didn't happen enough for me. Maybe it happened enough for others, but it didn't happen enough for me. So, Anyway, I say, sure, I'll go, I'll do it. And I go this time, and um, I end up getting uh, lots to do, which is funny. I thought I would just kind of ride along, and so I ended up being a table leader and doing a couple other things. And um, The one time when we're called to sit, and you, we sit in a gymnasium, and it doesn't smell great in that prison. Um, there's not lots of deodorant. There are hand-rolled cigarettes, and there's no air conditioning. That's a powerful combination, folks. It's a, it's a, it's a distinct odor. If I could magically take us all there and take blindfolds off and say, where are, I mean, you would, you can smell that place walking in there. It just, it has an odor. It's not horrible. It's just strong. So in the midst of all of this four-day weekend, the time that we were to sit and uh, just be was chapel. And so chapel, imagine like space of this with 150 men there, half our prisoners, half our guys from the outside. And I ended up sitting next to a guy named Thaddeus. And Thaddeus was a person who had gone through Kairos years before. He was a person of color, tall uh, African-American guy. He reminded me of the guy from the Green Mile, that movie. He was a very, very big, strong, muscular um, African-American guy. And what stood out about him was his uniform was impeccable. Most of their uniforms are covered in transmission fluid because they work on transmissions out there. And so the stain just gets in their uniforms, and even when they're cleaned at the laundry, they still have stains. Well, he had a brand-new uniform, it looked like, but he had been there almost 30 years. He had been in jail almost 30 years. Big guy, didn't talk to many people. You just knew, you know what, let's just let Thaddeus be Thaddeus, and we'll just kind of walk around him. He, he was great. Anyway, I find myself during the, during the chapel time sitting on a seat like this next to Thaddeus, and I'm six foot six, and he's six foot four. And it's tight, and it's hot, and we're sweating, and we're worshiping, and we're just supposed to be being. 
And I can't help it. I do what Jack does right there. I, I just, I, I just kind of, you know, I kind of try to get my arms over my shoulders and around the seats behind me, and I've got my hands on the seats backs next to me. The next thing I know, my right hand is suddenly moved to the top of Thaddeus's bald head. Yeah, and I am lovingly rubbing <laughs> this man's head for about a minute and a half before I realize it. <laughs> Thaddeus is not looking at me. Everybody in the room is, though. Everybody else is looking at me. And I'm looking straight ahead at the cross when I realize, I won't use the words, oh my gosh, I've got my hands on this large man's head in a prison. And so I slowly kind of lift it up, and I, like, you know, a Monty Python movie or the Pink Panther, I kind of pull it way away. And then I think I pulled it between, like, the two metal chairs, and I just sat there. Now I'm sweating like crazy, and I'm thinking, I'm dead. I'm not going to make it out of this prison. Well, anyway, the service ends. I'm, I'm a mess. And one of the guys from the back runs up to me. He goes, oh, my gosh, did Thaddeus know you were going to do that? And I was like, no, I didn't know I was going to do that. He said, I don't think anybody's touched Thaddeus in 30 years. Yeah, it's funny, but it ought to make us go, oh. I didn't do it for that reason, folks. I'd love to tell you, oh, I'm so wise. I know who needs to be touched and who doesn't. No. I don't. And I, if I had to do it over again, I would not put my hands on Thaddeus's bald head. Uh, certainly not without asking. So the Lord broke me and said, yeah, you're going to go back to Kairos. The Lord pushed me back into a busy, busy Kairos and then had me do something for him. He does that sometimes. He doesn't do that all the time. The Lord doesn't just take over our bodies. And I'm, I'm sure it was a combination of things. But clearly, God's spirit of love was in the midst of that odd hand touching of Thaddeus' head. We never talked about it. I never went up to him and said, how was that? I didn't know who. I just kind of, <laughs> that was the end of that Kairos day, and we all said goodbye, and we never discussed it again. Um, so taken or chosen, right? Taken or chosen. God has chosen each of us, each of us for particular things. Blessed. The blessing is the cross. It's not, it's not, that lovely, have a blessed day, that's fine, but it's not that. It's the cross, it's bigger. It's those words in Ephesians, it's, it's weightier. Broken, that's the hard part. Broken. He's going to break us. He's, he, he's not content to leave us the way we are. And then given. I'll end with given. We're, we're poured out. Christ was poured out. The love of Christ has been poured out on all peoples. We, as disciples, we are poured out. You will be poured out. God will fill you back up. God will fill you back up, but you will be poured out. You will be poured out. Let's close in prayer. Lord, nervously, I think we all will admit that we want to be disciples. We'll, we'll nervously admit that. We want to be like Jesus. We, however, cannot do it. We try, we try. We do and we do, and yet, Lord, we come up short. And so sitting this morning, we pray like Paul did for those blessings, that you would pour your spirit into us in a new way today, that you would allow Christ to dwell in our hearts and make room for more and more of you. And finally, Lord, most importantly, you would root us and ground us in your love. Amen.